reading this morning in verse 18. That's where we will begin our reading through the remaining verses of this chapter. As we've done over the past several weeks, beginning in verse 18, Paul writes, For many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word as we open it this morning. May we have discerning hearts and minds by the working of your spirit. May you feed us from the truth of your word. And Lord, may we, may we marvel in the truth of who Christ is and what you've accomplished on our behalf in making us uh, citizens of heaven, of friends of the cross of Christ, turning and uh, removing the enmity, the hostility, reconciling us unto yourself. Father, we are eternally grateful. May we, may we just ponder and muse upon these truths this morning as we've gathered here this day, and may our hearts be strengthened, comforted. May we joy and rejoice in the truth of this great work of redemption and the great Redeemer our Lord Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you and be seated. Over the past couple of weeks, we have been considering Paul's warning concerning the many enemies of the cross, as Paul is listed in verses 18 and 19 of our text, which we've read this morning. We saw with the enemies of the cross that within verse 18, concerning these enemies of the cross, Paul wrote, for many. And the scriptures reveal that those who reject God and truth make up the majority, as we discover over the past many weeks or several weeks. In Matthew seven thirteen through 14, Jesus said, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. So again, I remind you that when Paul says, for many... And he goes on to refer to these many as the enemies of the cross, that this is something that has been ongoing since the coming of Christ. Man has been rejecting God and his truth since the Garden of Eden, but yet the number has continued to grow. In fact, as we've referenced in the weeks past, in Noah's day, every thought of man was continually wicked before God. And Noah alone finds grace in the eyes of the Lord, and his family finds grace under the umbrella of Noah finding that grace. Noah and his family into the ark that he might continue and, and, and fulfill his redemptive purpose of redeeming fallen man. But all other men other than Noah and his family, those eight souls who got on the ark, perished because of the wickedness of the day, the unbelief and the ungodliness and rejection of God and his truth. And so we must remember that the, the number of the enemies of the cross has always been greater than those of the friends of the cross. It's always been that way and it always will be that way until... God makes all things right and all things new. And at that time, the only remaining will be those who are the friends of the cross, who are one in Christ and with Christ in the family of God. He goes on to say, of whom I have told you often. Paul continually warned against the enemies of the cross, and he marked those who perverted the message of the gospel. 
He says, and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul's response to the enemies of the cross, as we have discovered, demonstrated both boldness and brokenness. And these two things do not have to be contrasted one with the other. In other words, many times we have this tendency where we'll be extremely bold and yet lack in brokenness. Or people will be just, if you will, weeping hearts in the sense and yet shy away from the boldness of the gospel. Paul was both bold and broken concerning the enemies of the cross, and so should we be. We should be bold in the truth while understanding and remembering that the only reason that you and I today are not, if you're born again, the only reason that you are not an enemy of the cross is because God has reconciled you, removing that hostility that existed between you and him and has made you part of his family. So why would we not be broken over others who lack such a relationship with our Heavenly Father, with our Lord Jesus Christ? So Paul, as we've discovered, expressed his grief concerning those who were enemies of the cross, but at the same time, he warned boldly the Philippian believers by way of providing a clear description of those who were enemies of the cross. Within verse 19, Paul points out four specific details which we've examined, which aren't those who are the enemies of the cross. Notice, and we're briefly going to review these and move forward this morning. Verse 19, the beginning of the verse, he says, "...whose end is destruction. The enemies of the cross are marked..." by their pursuit of destruction. And remember, I shared with you last week that a destructive end is the result of a destructive life or a life pursuing the path of destruction. In other words, you say, well, who wants to be destroyed? No one wants to be destroyed, but their very life is pursuing after destruction by the way that they live. And Scripture warns us of that very truth. Second, verse 19 goes on to say, whose God is their belly. The enemies of the cross are marked by their worship and service to themselves. These men who were, uh, who, these are, were men who were governed by their own desires and acted according unto their own sinful and selfish lusts and that alone. Verse 19 continues, and whose glory is in their shame. The enemies of the cross are marked by their boasting in wickedness. Now, boasting in wickedness does not necessarily, is not only boasting in something that is immoral in the sense of ungodliness that's just physical and, and very obvious. But even, even those of, who Jude, of whom Jude wrote and Peter wrote that we even viewed last week concerning verse 4 of Jude where he says that they turn the grace of God into lasciviousness, into licentiousness, which is a license to sin, freedom to sin, and they boast in that. Peter says these men, they, they talk of the liberty that they're providing while they themselves are in the bondage of corruption. And so it is boasting in this wickedness. And then last The fourth is that Paul says, who mind earthly things. And the enemies of the cross are all marked by their misplaced focus on worldly and temporal things. Again, you may not see someone boasting in their wickedness as much as someone else. You may not see someone who who is actively just serving themselves all the time in an open, shameful manner. You may not see someone who you would think is following the pursuit of the path of destruction by their outward actions. But here's one mark that no enemy of the cross can escape. They will be temporally and earthly minded. They cannot possess a spiritual eternal focus. They may have an interest in spiritual things, but they will not be consumed by that which is eternal and spiritual, nor pursuing after that. And we saw that clearly last week in several passages of Scripture. So when we began our study of this portion of this epistle concerning Paul's warning of those who were the enemies of the cross, I pointed out the contrast made by Paul between verses 18 and 19, 
with verses 20 and 21. And it is fitting that Paul explains one of the main distinctions between those who are enemies of the cross and those who are the friends of the cross of Christ is the radical difference in the perspective of each. As we will see and compare within our study of this text, while those who are enemies of the cross have a very short-sighted and temporal perspective, those who are the followers of Christ have a spiritual and eternal perspective. So while Paul explains that the distinctive marks of those who are the enemies of the cross are found within verses 18 and 19, Paul also includes within verses 20 and 21 the marks of those who are friends of the cross of Christ or marks of those who are followers of Jesus Christ. So we've looked at the enemies of the cross in verses 18 and 19 over the last couple of weeks. Now let's move forward in verses 20 and 21 with this contrast which Paul makes of those who are the enemies of the cross contrasted by those who are the friends of the cross. Verses 20 and 21, let's read them again. For our conversation is in heaven. Now what's the last thing he just said? The last thing he had just stated here in verse 19 is they mind earthly things. Who mind earthly things? The enemies of the cross. But notice the distinct difference Paul now makes. For our conversation is in heaven. From whence we also, or also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. What a phenomenal statement that is made here. And notice that it begins again with this distinct contrast between the enemies of the cross who are earthly minded, they serve themselves, to we, our conversation, those who are believers, friends of the cross, where we are not serving ourselves, not That's not what consumes us. I'm not saying we never do that. That's whenever we are not looking to Christ. But the conversation we have is in heaven. We have a different citizenship. And therefore, our perspective is different than that of the world's perspective. The things that consume the world, not should not. The things that consume the world do not consume the follower of Jesus Christ. I didn't say we can't be distracted. We can be. But those are not the things that consume us. The things of the worldly mindset. We do not possess a worldly mindset. And Paul makes that so clear here in these two verses. Verse 20, he begins four. Paul begins this contrast or comparison between the enemies of the cross and the followers of Jesus Christ with the conjunction four. And the conjunction four in this verse is used in what would be referred to as an adverbial causal use. And this means that the conjunction provides the basis or grounds of an action. Notice what Paul goes on to say in verse 20. For our conversation is in heaven. The noun conversation means commonwealth or citizenship. So when he says conversation, he's not just talking about your speech or how you communicate with others. He's talking about your very, not not even only limited to your lifestyle, though that is implied as well. But it is our citizenship or our commonwealth is that of heaven, not this life, not this world. By the way, I think this is so clearly obvious that the reason that those who are unregenerate have such a temporal and worldly mindset is because the only thing they have in common is that which pertains to this world, to this life. Why is it the children of God, different ages, different different backgrounds, uh, uh, different 
uh, cultures and so on and so forth. We come together as children of God, as the family of God, as followers of Jesus Christ with a common bond. And it's totally unrelated to anything in this life. It is that which is eternal, that which is spiritual. For we have a citizenship which is in heaven. We have a commonwealth, that which binds us together in Christ. So within the statement of our conversation is in heaven, Paul is explaining, remember the conjunction four. I gave you, explained that to you for a reason. Again, it provides the basis or grounds of an action. So the noun conversation mean commonwealth or citizenship, what Paul is saying within the statement is he explains that the basis or the reason that the followers of the cross act or live or think as they do is due to the fact that those who are the followers of Jesus are citizens of a spiritual, eternal, and heavenly kingdom. So the basis for our perspective, the basis for our lifestyle, the basis for our actions, the basis for our mindset, the basis for our communication is all that we are not bound, we do not belong to this world. But we have a commonwealth and a citizenship that is spiritual and is eternal. Ephesians 2, 11-13, Paul wrote, Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision, the Gentiles and Jews, in the flesh, made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Ephesians 2.19 Therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. This is that commonwealth. Now, Paul is specifically in Ephesians referring to the Gentile church. And he's saying, you Gentiles had no part with God. And you'll find this to be true in Galatians. Paul explains it, how that we, had, we were not of the promise and of the covenants and of the, the prophets were not sent to us as Gentiles, but rather to those who were of Old Testament Israel, the nation of Israel. And that now he says, but now there's neither Jew nor Gentile. There is no difference in Christ. We are all made one. We've become part of the commonwealth of the true Israel, which is Jesus, of the true uh, tabernacle of the the true high priest he has made us one in himself as his body so we have a commonwealth we have a citizenship that is not of this life not in this world so while we are at one time a people whose ties were rooted in this world we now in christ have been made citizens of the heavenly kingdom of christ and this is who we are and and notice please clearly this is who we are and it's because of who we've been made to be in jesus which therefore determines our perspective concerning this life, concerning its purpose, and concerning its end. It is from the spiritual awareness that we have this eternal perspective which determines the manner in which we live this present life. Look, Paul, again, let me remind you, is making a distinction. There are the enemies of the cross, but then there are those who are the friends of the cross. And there is a clear, distinct difference. And how do we know or see that difference? 
it's demonstrated not only in how one acts, but that's included. It's demonstrated outwardly by the life one lives, which should be very clearly evident that it is sourced from a heart that is in submission to the Lord for those who are followers of Christ or those who are in rejection and enemies of the cross who live unto themselves. Now look, you say, oh, but there were religious people, and the Pharisees were religious people, and there's religious people today. But we're not talking about just someone's religious facades here, or even something that someone may be very sincere about. Remember, in chapter 3, this very chapter in previous verses, it is Paul who provides us this vast impressive resume and says if anyone could boast in the flesh i could boast more than anyone else and then he goes through his whole resume of all the things that he once counted as righteousness that he could hold up before god and say god here is my righteousness look at who i am look at where i came from look at what i've done look at look at my service to you but the same paul who was very religious the religious uh, the most religious among the religious and yet he says all that I count as lost because knowing Christ is greater, superior to all other things. And so he says, all of this is garbage. All of this means nothing at all because knowing Christ means everything. And that then marked Paul's life. In other words, let me ask you this question to distinguish between the religious and those who are friends of the cross. Do you not see a drastic difference between the religious Paul and the redeemed Paul? Is there not a distinct difference? And just as much so as there was a difference in Paul, there will be that same difference between those who are religious and those who are redeemed. Those who see Jesus as everything. Just as cultures widely vary from country to country, there is even a greater distinction between a worldly culture and a heavenly culture. The worldly culture says live for self, gain what you can while you're in this life, do the best you can, try to improve as you go along, but, but you know, look out for number one. That's the mindset of the world because this is all they have. While we are saying if you are in Christ, it's not about what you gain or what you lose. It's about Christ being exalted and God's glory being made known and recognizing that all of these things are but for a moment. But there is an eternal weight of glory that God is working to which we look. The scriptures address this matter regarding both unbelievers and believers in this cultural difference of a worldly and heavenly culture or mindset. John 4, 4, John wrote, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. That pretty much marks it clearly, doesn't it? Those who embrace, not talking about a friend of people who are in the world, who are lost. It's talking about friendship with the ungodliness or the ungodly culture in which we live. God has not called us to befriend an ungodly culture. He's called us to be light in a dark, spiritually darkened culture and dead culture. Spiritually speaking, 1 John 2, 15 through 17, John wrote, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Oh, wait a minute. So you say we're not supposed to love people that are lost. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the worldly system and the culture and the ungodliness. If, you, if your heart yearns after the worldly culture and the mindset of this world, if you are consumed by thoughts of of gain in this life and that's what that's what drives you 
then you are a friend of the world and not a friend of God, as John so clearly states. He goes on to say, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Here you have it, have it explained to us. And by the way, just to remind you, these three areas of temptation are the exact same three areas in order that Eve was tempted in the garden and fell. And it's also the same explanation of the temptation of Christ in Luke chapter 4 in the same order in which Christ was tempted on all three fronts, yet had no sin within him and did not sin therefore. And we are tempted in the same manner. He says, verse 17 of 1 John 2, And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Then John 15, 18 through 19, the gospel of John, Jesus said, if the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own, but because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Let me remind you of this. While there are so many people today who seem to there's so many, there's always extremes, and two extremes specifically. And it's interesting that on one extreme, there are these people who don't want to offend anyone. And, you know, if that, oh, that's your truth, and that's what you believe, and so that's okay. No, it's not. Okay? Your truth is a lie if it's not from God's truth, <laughs> God's word. So you have no truth of your own. You possess no truth. God's truth is truth, not what you want to be truth or think is truth, no matter what that may be. And then you have the other side who we just want to go out and, man, if we're not offending somebody, then we're not really serving God. We're not really loving Jesus if we don't make people hate us. That is, that is not what the Scripture is talking about. Jesus says, if the world hates you, remember it hates you. Why? Because it first hated me. So what is, what is Jesus implying or stating here? He is saying that the only reason that this world will hate you is because they are seeing my life live through yours. It's me they hate. It's not you they hate. It's me living in you that they hate. So it's not about trying to be offensive to everyone. It's about standing boldly in the truth and declaring the truth. And when you do that, the world will hate you. You will not be a friend of the world or a friend to them, and they will not be a friend to you. The worldly culture and the system is what I'm referring to and what, what the Scriptures are referring to. So the truth is simple. Those who are friends of the world are friends of the culture to which they belong. Doesn't that make sense? I am, I am fond to the culture in which I live. I, I, I live, and I'm talking about not in an ungodly sense. I'm talking about in a cultural, societal sense, not with ungodliness, wickedness. I'm speaking of we have culture that we live within here within the United States. Even to state it further, we have a culture in the South that is not that of the North. I say amen to. <laughs> So we have a different culture, and we live accordingly. I'm glad that we don't cook like the North, if you call that cooking, right? I'm glad that we have Southern cooking. I'm glad we have, I'm glad that, as Brother Steve mentioned the other day, he was invited when he first moved down to not this area, but in the South or was working in the South. They said, we're going to have a barbecue. He thought that meant hot dogs and hamburgers. No, that's not what that means. There was a whole hog stretched out over a fire. That is a cultural thing, and we live that way. We live according to our own culture. And I'm not saying that again in sinfulness. I'm talking just the manner in which we carry on in our lives. And why do we do that? Well, obviously, 
I believe most people who live in the southern culture love the southern culture. That's why so many implants from the north come down south because they want to eat good and they want to have warm weather, right? And see sunshine instead of snow. So the point is they love the culture. They love the way things are. And, and we live according to our own culture as far as America is concerned, our own country. And, and most of us, I would say that we love our culture. We love our country. We love how it is. And we don't attempt to live according to someone else's culture in most cases. So wouldn't it make sense then to understand what, what Paul and what John is even saying here to us? And that is that those who are friends of the world are friends of the culture to which they belong. They, they love or are friendly to the culture. And I'm not talking, now we're talking about the ungodliness in the worldly system, not, again, manners in which we carry about business and do things. But we're talking about the mindly ungodliness of the culture and society of the world by, in large by which we live, or by large in which we live. And so we must recognize that that culture, those who are friends to that culture, they're friends to it because they belong to it. This is what we want. This is what we know. This is what we love. While those who are friends of the cross are friends to the cross due to the culture which they belong. We don't belong to this world. Look, I feel out of place in an ungodly culture. I feel out of place. This is not my home. And I say to you, and young people, however many there may be here this morning, let me say to you, and those who may be younger than me, which are very few, let me just say this to you as well. The older, if you know Christ, the older you get, the more you long for an eternity with him. The more the desire is cultivated greatly, more greatly within you. Not, you're not suicidal. You're not saying, I don't want to live. But you're saying, oh, I long for the day in which God will make all things right to his glory, to his honor. And it's not about relieving me from my troubles. And I don't mean, I mean that. That's not the point here. It's not about, well, I wish things were better than they are. No, it's that God will make all things right and every knee will bow before Jesus, declaring him as Lord to the glory of God the Father. I said this Wednesday night, I believe it was, that not one person will enter into eternity not knowing and having not confessed who Jesus is. No one will perish going, well, I just don't know. I've never heard of Jesus. Oh, they'll know, and they will bow before him and confess willingly that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I long for that day that all things are subdued under his lordship in a realistic manner, realizing that truth. So people are friends to the culture to which they belong. They act accordingly. Within verse 20, we discover that the first contrast Paul makes is not a contrast of the actions of the friends of the cross with those of the enemies of the cross. And I believe this is very interesting. He's not saying, well, if you're an enemy of the cross, this is how you act. But if you're a friend of the cross, then this is how you act. No. The contrast is not between the actions of those who are friends or enemies of the cross, but rather the contrast is of that which determines the difference between friends and enemies of the cross. In other words, again, you are... Not of this world, for our conversation is in heaven. He doesn't say, oh, well, we act this way because we say we love Jesus. No, he's saying this is the basis for the distinction made between us who are friends of the cross with those who are enemies of the cross. We do not belong to this culture. This isn't, we, don't, we don't belong to this kingdom that's on this earth. We belong to a heavenly and eternal kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. And so because we are citizens of heaven... 
Let's just work this out quickly here. We possess an eternal anticipation. Notice what he says. Verse 20, we will see Jesus. We look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an anticipation. Those who are friends of the cross, it's not about how will I in this life, when can I retire, how much will I have, uh, how, you know, all, it's not even about our families and how close we, no, it's one day I am going to see Jesus and this is where my eyes are set. This is my focus. It's not about how I'll end this life, in this life, what I have, what I don't have, how much I've accomplished, or God forbid that we think it's about leaving a legacy. It's about none of those things. It's about seeing Jesus. That's all that matters. But notice the anticipation beyond just seeing Jesus. There's also this eternal anticipation that we will be changed like unto Jesus. Verse 21 goes to say, Who shall change our vile, vile. Isn't that an interesting adjective that Paul uses here? He is saying, who's going to change our wicked, disgusting, dead, sinful body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body why would he say such a thing listen those who have an, a, a temporal worldly perspective those who are enemies of the cross they don't view their body as vile they view their body as all they have and and they they love their body <laughs> but paul's saying i despise this flesh in which i live He says, and I desire to be changed into his glorious body in that same likeness. This is the eternal anticipation that is present. Two, because we are citizens of heaven, we possess an eternal confidence. Notice what he says in verse 21. According to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Again, I want to point this out as I did two weeks ago, I believe. It's interesting that Paul uses such dynamic language because he here is saying we have a vile body and here's our eternal anticipation and our mindset and our perspective is I'm going to see Jesus. But why is all this the reality? Why is all this an anticipation we, we, we have? Because we are citizens of heaven, not this earth. And because of that, we have this anticipation, oh, I'm going to see Jesus. But not only am I going to see Jesus, but also he's going to change this wicked, vile, wretched, sinful body into the likeness of his glorious body. But notice the, what Paul then states, according. How does this happen? According to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Do you see what Paul is actually saying? Look, you thought creation was powerful. You thought it took power for God to create the worlds? Here's the reality. The real power of God is seen in his redemption and the transformation. Ultimately, his redemption is made complete in which this vile, wretched body will go to the grave, but yet there will be a resurrection of the dead and our spirit will be joined to a glorified, glorious body like as unto Christ. And it is that same power that is required to do that. Okay, again, I'll say to you, while you may hear people say, oh, well, you know, we're all good people. People naturally aren't bad. They're really good. I'm telling you, you're vile, wretched, filthy, wicked, sinful, hopeless, helpless, apart from Christ. And it takes this kind of power of God. How bad are you? This is how bad you are. Wow, I notice no one agrees with that. How bad am I? This is how bad I am. I thought I heard my wife say amen at least. This is how bad you are. 
This is how bad off we are. And it takes this power of God to transform this wicked, sinful flesh into a glorious body like unto His. But we're confident He is capable. He is able to do this. And not only is He able, He will. By the way, Philippians 1, 6, it's Paul who said in this same book, remember, being confident of this very thing, that He which hath begun a good work and you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. God's going to complete this work. He's able and capable and willing and faithful to do so. So we not only have the confidence that God is able to change our vile, sin-cursed body into a glorious body as His, but that it is the same power in which God will bring all things under submission to the Lord Jesus by which He accomplishes this work. From this understanding of the contrast provided by Paul within this passage, let us dig a little deeper this morning into the significance of the truth which Paul declares in this passage. Let's read verses 20 and 21 again, and we'll... we'll Uh, quickly run through this just again to elaborate a little more so in the overall truth of what Paul is stating and the significance of that truth. He says, for our conversation is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. So it is because we are citizens of heaven that we have spiritual roots that provide us an eternal perspective concerning this life, concerning this life's brevity, concerning this life's purpose, and concerning this life's end. And as citizens of heaven, these verses provide the greatest comfort, the greatest confidence and joy for those who are friends of the cross of Jesus. First, I want you to see we are comforted in knowing that our Lord Jesus will return and we will see him as he is. Again, verse 20, for our conversation is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle John wrote of the comfort of this, from this great promise in 1 John 3, 2. He says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Here John summarizes what Paul has said. He goes, look, We're not yet what we're going to be. And it's an interesting statement that he makes here. Notice what he says. He says, now are we the sons of God. We are God's sons. We're not yet what we're going to be, obviously. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when we shall, he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So John is saying, We're not what we once were because now we are the sons of God, but he has yet to be revealed what we shall be because we have yet to see him as he is. Remember, we look through a glass darkly. And as much as God has revealed Christ to us through the word of God, we still have a hazed view. We still have a hindered view of truly seeing who he is. But there is a day coming we will see him as he is. And we'll be changed as he is into a glorious body. Two, we are confident that this corruptible will put on incorruption. Who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body? This life is temporal, and we will one day be delivered from this body in which we are presently bound. The Apostle Paul wrote concerning both the desire and the confidence that we The believer's desire of being changed. Romans 7, 24 and 25, Paul wrote, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, with the flesh, the law of sin. He's saying, I am a wretched man, and this flesh is still a hindrance, but my desire is not on earthly things. My desire is on that which is eternal and heavenly and spiritual. 
The believer's confidence also that we will be changed, not only the desire of being changed, but that we will. 1 Corinthians 15, 51-54, Paul wrote, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trump for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And then number three, we are certain that God will fulfill his purpose and glory. Verse 21 goes on to say, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. The power that has transformed does transform and will ultimately transform us into the likeness of the image of our Lord Jesus Christ is the same power by which God, the Lord, created all things that exist. The same power by which he raised up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. And the same power by which he will ultimately bring all things under submission to himself. And it is by this power that God is determined to fulfill his purpose, plan, and his plan to his glory. Ephesians 1.11, Paul writes, In whom, also, speaking of Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. God does all things as he desires to do them. That's what he's saying here. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Those who are friends of the cross as followers of Jesus Christ will bear the marks of spiritual and eternal culture of heaven to which we belong. With this heavenly citizenship comes all the promises and confidence in the God who is faithful to fulfill his purpose unto and for his glory. We are not enemies of the cross. If you know Christ, you are a friend of the cross. But if you claim friendship of the cross and the marks of an enemy of the cross is what defines your existence or your life, then your life is betraying your claims. Those who are enemies of the cross bear marks of a culture that is sinful, wicked, bound under the curse of sin, dominated by sin. But those who are friends of the cross belong to a heavenly culture, a heavenly citizenship, a heavenly commonwealth, which marks us all the same. People say things like this all the time. Well, you don't know because you can't see their heart. You're right. But I can sure see understand what Scripture says about the lifestyle of those whose hearts have been regenerated and transformed, contrasted by those who continue in a wicked, sinful, fleshly, bound culture and desires consumed by a worldly culture, sinful culture, rather than understanding the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, having been transformed by such truth. And so it's important that we recognize that. And, and again, I hear this all the time. Just recently, someone said to me, well, we don't judge. I said, you're right, we don't judge. God's already judged. God's already said what it is and how it is. I'm just aligning with what he says. I'm not judging. I'm saying this is what God said. Then people say, let God be the judge. He's already judged. He's already declared. He's already given discernment in this and said, look, this is how it is. 
Let me remind you of this one truth, and I'm finished. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, if any man be in Christ, he probably should be, should act like, or should walk as though he's a new creature. No. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. And to just clarify, in case there's any misunderstanding, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And the next verse says, and all things are of God. God is the one who makes these things new and gives the new desires and makes the transformation in one's life. It's not about us striving to look different, striving to be different. Listen, hear me please. If you are a follower of Christ, if you've been born again, if you are regenerated, you don't have to try to act different or try to look different. You are different. And that will be manifested in those who've been made new in Christ. It's just that simple. Now to clarify, I must say this. You can look at my life at certain days at certain times and I am not reflecting the life of Christ. I, I fall. I'm, I'm still bound to a sinful flesh in which I live a body that is, that is uh, still affected by sin, I should say. So we're not talking about this perfection. None of us have reached perfection, nor will we. Christ alone is perfect. But yet, because he who is perfect dwells in us, he's continually, God is continually conforming us to his image, to the image of Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that will be evident Again, salvation is always personal, but never private. It's always personal, but it's never private. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you.